the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. This is episode 54, uh, and it is titled NOAA Pacific. Uh, let's welcome our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Gene. Hello, Patrick. I thought I would uh, not keep you waiting today and be on time. How do you like that? Ah, uh, you caught me off guard. <laughs> yeah, I figured it would. But, you know, it's good you're keeping me on my toes. Um, so what's going on with you? You've been uh, doing any flying, or uh, what's happening down there in, in Texas? As a matter of fact, we have done a little flying. Uh, of course, we're stress testing all our equipment about this time of the summer. You know, unlike our guest who is going to cooler climbs, uh, it has been hotter than 10 acres of burning cedar stumps down here in Texas. And uh, we're we're pushing the the limits of our equipment and people and everything else. But it's I mean it's good. I mean we're finding out what breaks and what doesn't. So uh, it's uh, good research on our end. It's just uh, kind of rough on the old bod. Hey, I hear you. I hear you. But it's it is good to get out there in the extreme climates and uh, put the the equipment through the paces and see what you get. There's some real value in that. I uh, I noticed that too in the projects I was in. You get out in the in the hot desert temperatures and stuff starts failing, you know, but uh, it's a good learning curve. Um, I've been busier than the proverbial tick on a hound dog with the uh, Small Unmanned Systems Business Expo. Um, that is uh, certainly eating up a lot of my time. Yep. However, uh, there's a there's a buzz out there in the community worldwide. Everybody's talking about it. They're interested in it. We we did try and shotgun this deal early, but um, we actually uh, we've got a lot of sponsors. We got Leclerc Ryan Law Firm. We got Nexu Tech sponsoring the internet. Just think, we're going to have a new technologies uh, symposium, and we're actually going to have free internet for the attendees. That's that's like a groundbreaking right there. I never understood that. You go to you go to these shows. Hey, what's the password for the internet? Oh, there's no internet. Oh, okay. So I'll sit here in the mushroom cave for the next two days. So we're going to have that. We also have a deal uh, cooking with Domino's to uh, deliver us some pizza. You might have seen the video of the Domino's pizza drone. Of course. So we'll we'll, uh, call over there to the FAA and see if we can get Clarence to fly in some pizzas. (laughs) Uh, Right. Oh, it'll be no problem. You know, i got a lot of friends over there. All I got to do is pick up the phone, make the call, and it would be like, uh, the skids are already greased. I'll tell them that I know you. How about that? Oh, okay. That 15-minute COA just got stretched out. That's right. Personal friends with Mr. Gene Robinson. Anyway, it's uh, it's coming along good. We got a great, great uh, line of speakers. Um, it, it's it's going to be it's going to be groundbreaking. We're also going to try and stream it, and I think we're going to stream it for for free. Uh, we're also trying to do a new first there, and you'll be able to um, ask questions via the Twitter or email. Um, we're also going to have we're going to try and Skype some folks in uh, that can't make it from around the world. So it's just that they could talk for a few minutes and, and kind of, you know, what it means to them. It's real history-making uh, event. So looks good. We've got a lot of folks. I know um, we got this guy, Gene Robinson's coming out. He's going to talk about well, Czar. You may have heard of him. Yeah, <laughs> he might have book or something like that. 
He did. He wrote a book, um, uh, and it's uh, actually a pretty good piece of work there if you're interested in uh, learning how to do SAR with small unmanned aircraft. So, you know, we did do a show about that. You can go back in the uh, go back there in, in, in the past episodes and hear all about it. But oh, yeah. all right. Well, um, let's move along here into segment one, and we are going to bring on our guest, who is the Deputy Superintendent for Operations and Administration, NOAA, NOS Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary and Project Scientist, NOAA, or Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program, Mr. Todd Jacobs. How's it going, Todd? Good morning. Uh, just fine, Patrick. <laughs> it's kind here. of a lot. And we're glad you're here. Uh, it's kind of a long title, and it, and it kind of suggests that uh, you're kind of busy down there, Todd. So maybe you could uh, introduce yourself to the audience, you know, a little bio, uh, where you've been, where you're at now, and how you got involved with uh, unmanned aircraft systems, if you could. Sure, happy to. Uh, and it's actually two titles. That's probably why it reads a little long. Uh, <laughs> but in my in my day job, uh, where I work uh, with the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary of NOAA here in Santa Barbara. Uh, I oversee our, our staff that, that does operational things with our research vessels and uh, oversee our sort of budget facilities and administration. Um, since 2005, I've been on half to two-thirds time detail to another part of NOAA, and that's the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program Office. Um, I'm sort of one of the uh, initial people that uh, was selected in NOAA to, to work on what was our first unmanned aircraft systems project, which was a collaboration with the NASA Dryden Flight Research Center um, to put a NOAA payload on Altair, which was a pre-production Predator B, um, and fly science missions, and that was really the inception of, of UAS and NOAA, and that was that was really a project at, at that time, funded with some discretionary money from the uh, then NOAA administrator, um, Vice Admiral Lautenbacher, and um, from that effort uh, grew the UAS program, which later uh, included full and part-time staff and people on detail such as myself. And um, really the, the UAS program office mandate is to determine where UAS technology uh, will be beneficial to add to NOAA's fleet of scientific research aircraft. Uh, the operations are conducted principally by our Aircraft Operations Center, uh, where we have uh, you know, several <clears throat> aircraft and many pilots. Um, but the program office really develops the requirements, analyzes the systems and sensors that are available uh, on the market, conducts demonstrations and evaluations, and then makes recommendations for, uh, you know, for procurement and acquisition, and puts together the science missions, which are then operated in conjunction with our uh, Aircraft Operations Center. Um, so I've been with NOAA since 1989, and in various capacities uh, uh, of operational things sort of led me down this path. Um, I've had 
think four research vessels built in my time with NOAA. I was attached to a project for a few years that worked with National Geographic, a training scientists to operate uh, single-seat, one-manned, deep submersibles. Um, worked a lot with uh, remote sensing and various systems, and mostly wow, in operational management background. Go ahead, Gene. Uh, I was just with when you get into you know remote uh, submersibles and putting one man remote submersibles down deep. That's that's some pretty intense stuff there. So yeah, that's that's good on you. And and, and Todd, uh, did, do you just have an affinity toward flying things, or was it because you're maybe like a a Mister Gadget that you got volunteered for the job, or you know put your name in the hat? How did they pick you to to, to do that? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm trying to reach back. I mean, I, I I spent some time in the special projects office of the National Ocean Service, and and I, I have sort of an engineering type of mind, although no no formal training in it. Um, I'm I'm pretty good with equipment and machines and understanding systems, uh, but I might have just been uh, available with some extra capacity and the prerequisite skills for the initial. Uh, I think I was in the right place at the right time more than anything else. We hear a lot of that. It's, it's not a, one of the common uh, threads here on the show. Is people are like, well, you know, it's just kind of here, and this thing kind of happened, and I was like, hey, that's kind of neat, and uh, had a little bit of extra time or whatever, and got involved in that, and it took off. Um, I, you know, I, I really do. Uh, I'm in a primarily an air guy, but I, I do like. I, I, I think that the the under stuff is really cool um and, and the things that you can do you know it's it's kind of funny as everybody oh you know they're talking about space and uh, you know and i like space too i'm not deriding space because i really think there's a lot of opportunity in commercial space um but i mean as far as the ocean's concerned i mean it, there's a, a total frontier there that's been barely uh analyzed is that fair to say Oh, very much so. I mean, there, there's a, a million analogies, but, uh, you know, so little of, of the deep ocean especially has been explored that uh, it's almost a, a shame as, you know, we're, of course, there's less money for space exploration now too, but uh, I thought it uh, sort of interesting and sad in a way when uh, the Challenger Deep was, was recently conquered by uh, Jim Cameron with a full ocean depth submersible that was really uh, a competition uh, where there were three privately funded uh, competing entities to to uh, go back to the deepest part of the ocean where nobody had been since 1959. And the people that were there that one time before basically did a bounce dive with no windows. So what what what, what troubled me about this, that there were these three efforts, and, and uh, one was involved funding with uh, Richard Branson, uh, the other with uh, Eric Schmidt of Google, and the third, of course, that, that actually finished their submersible and went to the bottom of the ocean was, was James Cameron, and, you know, good on him for doing it. Um, but what what makes me sad is that NOAA doesn't have that capacity, that, you know, that, that uh, a consortium of government research, international government research institutions doesn't have the funding or the capacity to do that, but the private sector does. So I think that's kind of a sad statement of, you know, where priorities for research in the deep ocean have gone. Um, although that's pretty tangent from our discussion here on unmanned aircraft systems. Yeah, but I mean, I agree with you. Um, I, you know, I really, um, and it's not just a NOAA thing. You know, I would, 
we used to meet over here at NASA Ames and uh, go into the airplane or the blimp hangers. Blimp hangers are excellent. I'd give my eye tooth to have one. I wonder if I could get it moved into the backyard. The uh, But you go in there and they have all these uh, aircraft from the 70s, all of these you know, like groundbreaking uh, scientific aircraft. And um, I was actually there to see the uh, Zeppelin NT was hangered there. And uh, I, and it was interesting and everything else. But, man, I was gravitated right to these aircraft. They got all the uh, pictures in the flight ops building, you know, the, the glossy Kodachrome, you know, color photos of all these scientific equipment. And I was like, man, you know, remember when, when, when NASA was just really doing all this science and, and, and trying to break new ground and everything else. But, you know, funding's an issue. Um, people have also become risk-averse. Our culture has become risk-averse, and, and it seems like blazing or pioneering a trail is just too dangerous and too hard to put together or, or too much exposure for people. And I agree with you, Todd. It's, it would be nice if, if uh, we were doing uh, – the United States was doing more in the ocean uh, and in space and things like that. But I, I don't want to get too far off into the weeds on that, but I do think it was cool. Now, do you remember how deep they went in the, uh, in, in the trench there? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't have that off the top of my head. How, how deep the deepest part of the Marianas Trench is? It's deep, but uh, yeah, I forget too. But wow. anyway, well, that, yeah, it's it's deep. it's dark and it's cold, and uh, there's a lot of pressure there. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, so um, you know, let's uh, let's kind of talk about uh, you know you said you said you've uh, you, you know you go out into the field and you uh, collect data, so maybe you can. Tell us about the types of missions you fly with uh, UAS. And now, I didn't limit that to smalls because you did uh, allude to doing some work with some the bigger steps. Maybe you can give us the whole spectrum there. Yeah, I can sort of characterize NOAA's forays into unmanned aircraft systems, uh, what we've done, where we're going, and then you know, kind of showcase my specific interest in, in uh, developing small UAS. Uh, science missions in NOAA. So, you know, to, to just carry on chronologically from our predator experience that kicked the whole thing off, um, we've all, all the big UAS work, so the predator and global hawk related missions have, have been in conjunction with NASA. So we work very closely with the Dryden Flight Research Center, especially, but other units of NASA as well. And uh, for the um, Predator, we uh, had uh, initially one NOAA Corps officer pilot, a winged aviator, uh, trained to be a Predator pilot, and that was following NASA's acquisition of Ekana, which is a Predator B uh, MQ-9, you know, Predator that's mm -hmm. uh, configured to fly uh, as different variants. So it can fly. In fact, it's been recently reconfigured and up upgraded to the current block Air Force-type uh, wiring uh, harnesses and so forth, in addition to its uh, capacity to carry science pods. Um, and uh, have partnered with NASA on, on science missions on Ikana. And when the um, Global Hawks were acquired and set up for science, uh, NOAA's been flying science missions and training more NOAA Corps officers to support NASA in, in those affairs. And, and most of that work is high altitude, obviously. It's, it's missions that are related to 
global climate change, um, and advanced weather, principally, and uh, you know, Arctic uh, Arctic issues. That's uh, pretty far from from the work that I focus on personally, and that's uh, small UAS. And my you know my career has been in in management of national marine sanctuaries in NOAA, um, which include some pretty remote places. Um, I just got back uh, a little over a week ago from from a 10-day long mission where we used the AeroVironment Puma AE UAS system to survey the remote outer coast of Washington State, essentially the uh, coastline of the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary and, and Olympic National Park Wilderness Area for their annual seabird surveys, which include surveying for several sensitive and, and endangered bird species, such as the common mures, tufted puffins, rhinoceros oclets, etc. Um, incidentally, we also captured uh, sea lion and sea otter populations in the remote areas and um, did shoreline and offshore tsunami marine debris surveys. So mm-hmm. along these really remote pocket beaches on the coast that you can't even hike into. Now the the, the marine debris surveys were incidental to to our uh, bird work, but you know the, for the birds we're flying the bluff tops and and faces cliff faces um, to do the marine debris work. We just flew the same areas, but but along the shore. Now that's 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 a fairly remote place, but we also go to places like the northwestern Hawaiian Islands archipelago, where we'll have a NOAA ship underway for a month to do um, biological surveys up and down that chain. So that's basically from Kauai to Midway Atoll is uh, about 1,200 miles. Right. Atoll is a little farther than that. And so the, the value of these small UAS systems to do remote wildlife surveys that don't uh, have a chance of uh, hurting people because traditionally we've done this by launching small boats from the ship and landing people through the surf to then walk the beaches and, and conduct these surveys for, say, albatross, sea turtles, monk seals, uh, for the Hawaiian example. Um, by, by switching over to, to flying, say, with the Puma, we're not only uh, doing a mission that's safer, we also eliminate any risk of introducing any exotic organisms to these some of these atolls and islands are pristine you know for right. people going ashore um, but also there's much 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 less chance of disturbing these organisms than having the people out there as well so really being able to launch and recover at sea is part of the holy grail for NOAA and, and that's what you know led me and led us to following up on small UAS systems that were ship launch and recover capable and right. so most of my my work is what we call LMR, Living Marine Resource. I've been developing with a team of people. I mean, it's not just me, uh, but I've been working uh, with folks in NOAA to develop the protocols and procedures to do various wildlife survey missions pre um, and post oil spill quantifications and uh, for a, uh, a little bit of uh, – initial research on the potential to use these systems for fisheries and marine protected area uh, enforcement 
daytime and nighttime. Mm-hmm. So that's where my, my sort of main interest is, and that's why I, I really focus on the small UAS. All right. Well, now that was a, that was a lot of really uh, <clears throat> good information. Because you know that's that's what we like to have uh, people like you that are that are pioneering stuff like this on the program to share with our listeners because that's what people want to hear about. You know, people speculate about uses, and there's you know probably 200 speculative uses for the technology. And that what speculation is one thing, being out in the field doing it is another thing. So. I came up with a couple of questions for you, and and uh, one of them going back is, uh, and I'm I'm uh, pretty much on the fence on this one, but the global warming thing. Are are you? Is there science supporting that? And I don't want to get too deep into it. I just you know you're a professional. Uh, you know, what honestly, Pat, I, I'm not qualified to okay. comment That's on that fine. as a scientist or as a representative of the of the agency. Um, Am, am I concerned about it personally? For sure. Uh, but, okay. but I can't give you an expert opinion on that. I'm sorry. That's all right. Fair enough. The other question that I had when you were talking about that is the tsunami debris. And is that, I mean, you know, in the in the news media, we, we saw, you know, on the waves, there was just uh, literally tons of garbage. What, what's been the fallout from that tsunami? Is it tons of garbage in these pristine uh, areas or they kind of dissipate before it got there? What, what, what does that kind of look like? Can you give us a picture of that? Uh, I, yeah, I can give you a, a sort of general characterization of the of the work that we've been doing and why, and mention that uh, this is a collaboration with people that work in NOAA dedicated to the marine debris issue. Um, so we collaborated uh, both at the Olympic Coast of Washington uh, last month and, and a year ago uh, out in Hawaii on some initial research on using small UAS to be able to uh, identify tsunami-borne marine debris uh, in the ocean. And, of course, they've been, NOAA has been using our, our capabilities for modeling um, to, to forecast when the large you know, waves, if you will, of, of debris um, will impact uh, the Hawaiian Islands and the Pacific Coast of the United States and Alaska uh, over you know, the, this year and next, really. And... Um, so that, that issue uh, is a huge issue, and, and it impacts and will impact different areas, you know, different amounts. So a lot of that debris ends up in the garbage patch in the North Pacific Gyre, where it's entrained, but eventually slowly starts to spin out. And a lot of that material builds up in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands archipelago naturally. And, and there was debris doing that, you know. Since there's been marine debris in the ocean, it's uh, you know oceanic sorry patterns and weather sort of determine that. Uh, there's just sort of more of it from that source now. And uh, in in Washington, um, we were collaborating with with our uh, marine debris colleagues to uh, survey both the uh, remote outer coast, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, test a theory about whether or not there would be an accumulation of debris. Uh, entrained on the shallow edge of the continental shelf about 25, 30 miles offshore. So we did both uh, both things uh, last month. And, of course, there have been a couple, three very large, very well-documented in the media um, items of de- debris that were documented to have been of the uh, tsunami origin. There was, there was a pier uh, or two that washed up, or three, you know, in Oregon, Washington, and Alaska, 
with, with amazingly with uh, you know exotic organisms that survived the you know the Pacific. Um, and there's everything from that to, to, to small to small uh, you know containers and 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 uh, most notably a lot of large cylindrical um, pieces of, of foam that appears from the air like styrofoam, but when we hiked in to find uh, some of this material, determined it to be much heavier and denser uh, than, than foam, but these barrel-shaped items that are roughly uh, six to eight feet long and maybe uh, six feet around, and they're sort of cylindrical and tapered at the ends. We believe that they may have lost their outer plastic coating and their way across the ocean and, and maybe um, common floats from uh, from docks and so forth. But we're trying to identify what what they're the remnant of. But uh, of course, items with with Asian and Japanese markings were not uh, unheard of on the Washington outer coast prior to the tsunami. Uh, but there's a heck of a, lot, of a lot more of that stuff out there. That's coming for sure. Yeah, so that, that's that's an interesting uh, thing, and then I take you know the stuff that's inorganic is probably going to take a while to or be sitting out there for a while. Um, interesting, yeah. it's really interesting. So I you know I want to let uh, Gene in here. Gene, you got uh, you got anything? Yeah, uh, uh, Todd, you mentioned working in the Hawaiian archipelago quite a bit. Uh, did you do anything with the Lolo project there, the flying wing that was uh, you know ship launchable? With the Malolo, yeah, the uh, Malolo flying wing. Um, I was not uh, out there on the ship when uh, the initial testing was done. Although I have been on a small boat off of uh, Haleiwa um, in a warning area when the system was tested, and, and um, have worked uh, over the years a fair amount with Tim Vainstra and, and his company, and I'm, ver- and I'm very familiar with that system. Uh, we had actually, uh, the marine debris folks that we collaborated with um, last month in Washington had actually been planning on bringing the, the latest variant of that, um, the resolution it's now called, um, out, but uh, didn't uh, resolve airworthiness issues in order to, to operate it on this past mission. Uh, yeah, that uh, that was kind of one of the issues that has been bandied about pretty heavily there in the Hawaiian Islands because there were several startups and several folks that were trying to get something flying and uh, the FAA said uh, excuse me and uh, kind of brought those things to a grinding halt. And I was just wondering because the Malolo looked like it was a, a pretty robust and, and, and I, I got a, uh, I've got a soft spot for wings. I'm a flying wing guy so that's that's why I was kind of interested in that. I didn't know whether you could say anything or not but I, I thought it was a very interesting project there because I've tried to uh, keep electronics and salt water separate in the past, and it's not an easy task. Well, I'll tell you that's uh, I mean that's that's a great point, and maybe that's a good uh, sort of uh, intro into why we're flying the Puma AE, um, and, and you know how we selected that for our sort of pretty uh, heavy duty, almost exclusively vessel based uh, operations. The um, you know the fact that uh, that it that there's a, a approximately a 900 to a thousand reps of that system out at military service, and it has military airworthiness certificates and statements from the Army and the Navy, and of course now NOAA, um, make it uh, a fair bit easier to secure 
uh, both access to special use airspace and ACOA because it's a it's a familiar system. Um, there's a good solid uh, supply of, of parts and documented uh, you know training uh, available at ver for various sources for operating the, the Puma. But uh, really, the the fact is that it was designed uh, from the beginning to be able to be launched and recovered at sea. And when we talk to AeroVironment about things we'd like to eventually see in the system that would make it even better um, for our use, uh, which, of course, they're working on for future block upgrades like higher megapixel camera. Um, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, and, I, and, and I'm, <laughs> I believe what they say is exactly true, that uh, anybody can integrate a camera on, you know, to go fly a mission. It's recovering it from sea and flying it the second, third, and nth time. That's where the magic comes in. Because you right. know, that's, that's some pretty pretty salt uh, and electricity, obviously, are a terribly corrosive combination. And, uh, you know, landing hard is, is difficult on optical systems. So, um, you know, that's, that's a very robust and fairly simple-to-operate product, and, and we've had great success with it. Well, and then, then that kind of, you know, we're, uh, we're covering a lot of ground, but that one is kind of one of the questions that I, I had for you is what systems you're using and why, and you pretty much laid that out. But uh, during the, the, the course of your tenure here and, and using these systems, have you, have you tried other systems? Yeah, we have. Um, in fact, we, we own a quadrocopter, a microdrones, micro uh, MD4-1000 that we also flew off the Olympic coast last month. Uh, we've done uh, integration of a Scan Eagle system on a NOAA ship and flew a mission in the Arctic in 2009. We participated in several demonstrations on various vessels with uh, in situ uh, you know, in Boeing with the with the Scan Eagle over the years, um, we've we've collaborated. We've we've looked uh, uh, at systems that Lockheed Martin and other other uh, providers that uh, overlap with our requirements um, provide. And we're uh, you know we're not we're not done acquiring systems. We're 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 definitely. But our approach has been to really sort of identify and really understand our own requirements. And then look at what's on the shelf from the market. Ideally, systems that are that are fairly well distributed and, and uh, operated by the military, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, that solves a lot of uh, issues for you know, showing up with something that's sort of unknown when we're trying to get access to airspace. Um, in recognizing that that you know we uh, although we have a fair amount of uh, Experience flying in difficult and remote areas with our, you know, with our fleet. Um, we don't have a nav air, so uh, we're, we're better off buying the best off-the-shelf stuff that's available and using that equipment for the missions that it can do really well as it is, and not spending too much time going down the slippery slope. At least with small UAS. Again, this is I'm focused on small UAS, not integrating payloads into a Predator or a Global Hawk. But when, mm -hmm. when, you know, when, with a small system where the, the payload and the airframe uh, are more integrated and less, uh, you know, less uh, separable, if you will, um, uh, we're, we're really looking at what can we take out of the box and be successful with. Okay, I like that. Now, now I'm really... Keep it simple, stupid approach. 
Yes, well, and that's and that's important. And you know, I'm gonna I want to try and drill this down a little bit more because again, you know, every episode I believe has gold in it, and we wheel the gold card out, and people can examine the nuggets. And you're hitting on some of the nuggets now. You're talking about some of the reasons that you're purchasing systems that you are. And so let me just ask you: Have have you tried, let's say, uh, any of the mom and pop offerings? And what was your experience with that? What what could you offer to mom and pop as advice? Um, personally, I think the closest thing I've been involved with with uh, mom and pop, if you will, um, <laughs> with, would be just our, our work with ATI and the Malolo Resolution, and that, that's hardly mom and pop, but you know, a small manufacturer, if you will. Um, okay. I believe a, a fairly simple system. Um, was deployed on an Antarctic mission uh, quadricopter uh, that went along with the uh, micro drones unit um, a couple years ago when they actually had some success with that. Um, but uh, that's that's not you know that's kind of counter to 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 my perspective and that's with my you know background of of integrating some techno- new technology into NOAA where we had. Um, inadvertently, if you will, um, engaged with systems and companies that we had believed to be fully documented, fully operational systems where we, we realized <laughs> that, unfortunately, we ended up with beta versions and, and had to develop the operational procedures ourselves and <laughs> spent a lot of time uh, spending our time and money and spinning our wheels, perfecting someone else's you know, in the private sector's product because we made a commitment to use it. So we're, um, you know, just from my own history of, of working with, with uh, uh, various system integrations, um, you know, I've been trying to keep focused on on using, on not having to, to do lessons learned the hard way, you know, in, tr- in trying to, to pick equipment that, that's already been through the, through the mill. Right. And, and you know, those are some great points. And I, I hope the people that are potential manufacturers uh, are listening because, I, I, you know, I know that, uh, you know, you talk about you go on these, uh, you go out to uh, sea, you're on these missions, you're out, I, I'm sure, the daily to have all of the people, equipment, everything out there, it starts racking up pretty quick. And uh, you're out there and something that's been billed as ready for prime time is not ready for prime time. I'm sure that uh, kind of throws maybe a little monkey wrench in your program. Fair to say. Sure, and and you know some of this is is about uh, earning and maintaining credibility, uh, not personally, but but for the movement, if you will. You know, for the integration yes. of small UAS for science. You know, in the national airspace, even in remote areas. So, you know, we got to be really careful to make sure we can safely. And effectively accomplish what we, we we set out to do, and and certainly that's part of it. And yeah, when you look at being out on one of our ships, it's you know it's twenty thousand plus dollars a day for the ship, depending on which one we're on, up to thirty, and and that that does not include the salaries of the crew or the scientists on board. So you know every hour of every day is is pretty valuable, and. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, how much did that system cost? Um, when you look at across, uh, as when we do these UAS missions, either in lieu of a different mission or collateral to, 
uh, we're, we're talking about dollars a day in the marginal cost of flying small UAS missions in a remote area from a ship isn't even a rounding error. You know, it is, it is so, yeah. so inexpensive. Um, and that's why, you know, we want to use the best equipment with the best optics that, that we can get. Uh, and that's a lesson that, that uh, you know, I've learned and have been trying to promote for a long time. That's, it, it costs so much to be here, and we're never sure because of funding and everything else, although we may plan to be back next year, uh, we may not. So, you know, collect, collect the data, the most data with the highest resolution that you can because you may be able to post-process that yet again in the future for another for another purpose you hadn't even imagined. So, right. you know, that that's why that's why it's got to be good, you know, when you're well, there. Well, and, and and those are great points because really what you're saying too is and, and I think people some people don't realize this, but uh, the other thing is the the potential capital that you're missing. You know, like you're saying, I'm out here and we're out here now. We got everyone out here and if for some reason this this thing's not working for day 1, day 2, day 3, then there's that that potential data that we just lost, which is you know, really, at the end of the day, while you're out there, you're not out there for a pleasure cruise. Although some of these areas that you're um, you're out doing studies sound pretty nice, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean they're long days, but you you certainly can't help appreciate how lucky you are to get to have that experience or to you know see see uh, you know pristine and, and amazing uh, remote places. That's that's for sure. But yeah, if, if, uh, if and, you know all these systems, the, the harder you use them, the more you use them, you're you're going to have some attrition of small parts and pieces, and that's why you know a, like a full Puma system, for example, the way uh, we buy it is similar similar to a military configuration. There's three airframes, two ground controls, you know, all kinds of spare payloads and parts, and enough to you know to keep operating for for weeks on end in a remote place because again. Uh, although it's not trivial what the system costs, um, it's certainly uh, you know if if you uh, lose an airframe or some parts, you're going to keep operating anyway. Right, right. Well, and then that's so you, you go kind into of it with that But Can't I think another thing there. that you know for this to evolve, be it you know within within you know each agency or with the FAA, is uh, you know I mean we've been joking that the first time somebody, you know, loses one of the small UAS systems in a remote place that, uh, you know, we should give them a medal because, <laughs> thank God, there was nobody on board. You know, instead of, uh, you know, right. the loss of a – the potential loss, and we haven't lost any yet, but, a, you know, a 13-pound uh, carbon fiber uh, airframe with a battery and a camera in it, um, you know, shouldn't be, in my opinion – uh, unless it was a flyaway in, in an urban area, shouldn't become an NTSB thing. You know, if we're a thousand miles offshore, uh, uh, be it in the Arctic or you know, off of, right. off of Hawaii, in the, of the Pacific, and and you know, un- and we should unfortunately lose some equipment. Um, you know, that that's attrition. You know, in the military, these all these small systems are, are used as uh, relatively expendable, over the horizon, situational awareness tools. Um, right. Of course, we. We expect to keep our systems a lot longer, uh, and, and uh, we, you know we, we're, we're less likely to write one off because it's not safe to go recover it. Um, but that could happen someday, and, and uh, it still wouldn't necessarily be somebody's mistake if it did. Right, and now, and you know, it's funny you said that. I've got a few friends over at NTSB, and I think they would uh, wholeheartedly agree with you. 
about, uh, you know, setting out an investigation. And years ago, I'd come up with a, an idea for the NTBSB. It was a kind of a do-it-yourself kit where you downloaded the form on the Internet, brought your own hefty bag, bagged everything up, filled out the form, and sent it in with a couple of pictures. You know, you're good to go. Um now, as far as, uh, you know, you made up or talked about the FAA a little bit and uh, the COA process and things, do you find that, uh, let's say, easier to deal with because you guys are out in really remote places? Is it pretty simple for you or is it not? Um, our Aircraft Operations Center uh, does our COA process uh, requests and tracking for us, so I'm not uh, personally uh, directly involved in in COAs, although of course we'll we'll outline the geographic area for the request and work with our our flight ops people to perfect that request to the FAA. Um, I will say that um, you know we look forward to the future when we can fly beyond visual line of sight under COA, uh, and and are are um, planning on doing uh, working on state designation for for our uh, UAS and will be. Uh, operating under uh, different rules in really remote areas, um, but yeah, I mean, we we were within one mile, um, so we've had better luck um, testing and developing protocols for beyond visual line of sight to date in special use airspace. You know, working uh, with military airspace. Right, and and you know that might be one other question I'd like to ask you. Now, there's an obviously there's a, you're a champion of the technology. There's inherent value to it, um, and you know when when you're flying in that uh, the, let's say the V loss envelope, um, I, I, obviously you're still getting value out of that. But uh, do you? I mean, that when the day comes when you can do beyond visual line of sight, uh, what what do you think about that? The, the promise of that. Oh sure, it'll open up a lot more um, missions to be to be viable science missions than we can operationally do now. You know, we've developed some um, in special use airspace that we can't fly under COAs now, and certainly you can't fly any uh, surveillance or enforcement missions within a mile of your of your ship. You know, you're you're already, you can already people can see you with binoculars or with radar at that point. But right. but for uh you know, but there's lots of missions we can actually do well and the one we did last month uh within a mile was great because we were flying the Puma um within a hundred to two hundred feet of these sensitive nesting bird colonies and they didn't know we were there. And if they did they didn't care because birds were coming in and landing while we were flying right. over and serving them. Now those are traditionally done with manned helicopters, making a lot of noise, taking animals, flying at a thousand feet above and at a thousand dollars, excuse me, uh, at like eight hundred feet above it, at a thousand dollars or more an hour, and at some risk to the personnel aboard. So those are great missions um, to fly with small UAS, even under even under a COA, uh, you know, even under a VFR visual flight uh, uh, line of sight restriction. Right, right, and I think that's great, and I'm I'm looking forward to the future now. You're going out in the field again here pretty soon. Can you can you give us a brief overview of what that'll be about? Yeah, I'll be part of uh, a NOAA contingent uh, aboard the U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker Healy um, to do some sort of pioneering small UAS work in the Arctic in conjunction with the Coast Guard. And we've worked quite a bit with the Coast Guard on uh, small UAS stuff. 
since uh, since the beginning of when we really started to analyze systems. So we've had their uh, uh, engineering folks and people from their uh, R&D center out aboard NOAA vessels with us before. This time we're going with them. And so our uh, objectives, there, there are a few demonstration objectives and then a few uh, science uh, test objectives. And so, you know, initially we want to demonstrate that the Puma Ops can be done safely on and offboard a U.S. icebreaker uh, while underway. Uh, we want to demonstrate the NOAA Puma operations uh, in the Arctic and international and uncontrolled airspace, which I alluded to a moment ago. Um, look at uh, ISR capabilities of the Puma for a multi-agency science crew. Um, so basically, uh, you know, demonstrate uh, how, uh, you know, the, the, the visual uh, <clears throat> video and, and higher data can be, can be used so people can sort of put their mind around that for, for the Arctic in general. But the specific um, uh, purposes of, of what we want to do scientifically rather than demonstrate are, are to uh, stream, you know, full motion video back to the ship to help it uh, look at sea ice ridge uh, detection and monitoring for, for ship operations. Um, we want to uh, use some new software aboard to produce a digital elevation maps of ice ridges in the surrounding areas. Um, so we'll come back and post-process the data, you know, right into to 3D maps. Um, any marine uh, mammals uh, that we may see, we'll, we'll document those, which, you know, we've, we've done in several places several times now, just not in the Arctic. Um, look at uh, its usefulness potential for, for search and rescue and emergency response. Um, some of the more important things that, that I'll be directly involved with include detection and monitoring of oil spills from ships or oil exploration in the ice. So that's, that's a new and growing concern with, with uh, development in the Arctic. And we've been collaborating with the Canadian and Norwegian governments uh, and industry on that. Um, detection and monitoring of marine debris in the Arctic is you know, we discussed earlier, and uh, you know that that's basically the package. So we'll be uh, we'll be underway on the Healy from Barrow uh, sometime about September seventh or eighth uh, up into the Arctic. It'll be a two week long cruise uh, ending up uh, in Seward on about the twenty second of September. Well, it sounds like you got a full plate, but uh, you'll you, are you going to have comms? You got a sat phone up there in the Arctic. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely all kinds of comms on the ship, and we'll bring a, a NOAA sat phone or two with us and uh, should, should be able to communicate, and the ship has email as well. Well, it would be nice if we could, uh, if you got time, because it does sound like you have a full schedule, but if, if uh, during one of the shows while you're on the cruise, it would be nice if, uh, if it's possible if you could call in and maybe give us a five-minute update from the field. Uh, our listeners would love that if it's possible. We'll try and work that out. But, uh, you know, I, I want to we're, we're at the end of the show and I want to thank you, Todd, for coming on. Um, it was it was enlightening. Uh, you had some real gold again. And that's that's what we're here for. So I'd like to thank you, sir. Yep. My Very pleasure. Nice. Thank you for the opportunity. Hey, uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Gene, thanks a lot, buddy. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. OK, take care. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye bye.